Welcome to episode three of Solid Goal, stories of the best games in Paw Sox history. I'm Jim Kane. Today we look at a memorable night for pitcher Tomo Oka in June 2000. In September 1964, San Francisco Giants Southpaw Masanori Murakami became the first Japanese man to play in the major leagues. Murakami would only last two seasons, however, and it would be over 30 years before the next pitcher from Japan would step onto a big league mound. That man, Hideo Nomo, made a huge splash after signing with the LA Dodgers in 1995. He started the All-Star game and was named National League Rookie of the Year in 95, and in so doing, started the trend of Major League teams scouring Japanese baseball for pitching talent. Struck him out. That is a new mark for Nomo, 17. A magnificent performance for Hideo Nomo. Two years later, George Steinbrenner and the Yankees famously gave Hideki Arabu a $13 million contract without the hurler ever having stepped onto an American mound. Then in 1998, Arabu and the Bronx Bombers won the World Series. The Yankees have done it again. Number 24. They are the world champions of baseball in 1998. That season, the Boston Red Sox had finished 22 games behind New York. In hopes of finding the next big pitching import, the Sox decided to enter the Japanese market themselves. In November of 98, the Sox signed 22-year-old Tomokazu Oka from the Japanese Central League. He was better known by the shortened first name, Tomo. Oka began his career pitching in the States in 99 and dominated for two months while pitching for AA Trenton. The righty was quickly promoted to Pawtucket, where he continued to roll, going 7-0 with a 1.92 ERA for the club in 1999. Oka even briefly made his first foray into the big leagues that season. Then Paw Sox broadcaster Don Orsillo takes us back. It was our first feel of what it was going to be like to have a player from Japan on the team. A lot more media, a lot more people covering him. He was only 24, very much on the rise through the Red Sox organization at the time. And he's a guy that we're excited about, had had success with AA and certainly a AAA. Bill Wanless has been the Paw Sox head of media and public relations since 1985. He remembers Oka's arrival in Rhode Island. He was a very gracious, fun guy, easygoing. I don't know if he understood a lot of things, but he'd smile. And it was interesting. We had had some other Korean and Japanese players. But you could tell he was going to be a legit major leaguer. Reporter David Borges was the Paw Sox beat writer for the Pawtucket Times. Just a real low-key, even-keeled kind of guy. Didn't speak English, so you had to talk him to a translator, so you never got to really know him too, too well. But Paul's carried himself very well when he was with Pawtucket. Along with the influx of Japanese players to American pro baseball came a horde of media members from Japan sent to cover their every step for their fans back in the Far East, Wanless recalls. Tomo was a big star in Japan and all the players from overseas were a big focal point. And Tomo had, I would say, at least six to eight Japanese media. Even the nights he wasn't pitching, they would still be there. They were very respectful. One time after a press conference, one guy had stood on a stool in our media room and Japanese writer, and after he got off the stool, he wiped it down. I mean, how often do you see a guy, you know, that would wipe down a stool after standing on it during a press conference? The Japanese media would frequently attend Paw Sox games, usually when Oka pitched. I don't recall it being a real horde like you'd see with Hideki Matsui and guys like that in the major leagues. It was never anything too overwhelming. Despite being named the Red Sox Minor League Player of the Year in 99, Oka found himself back in the Pawtucket starting rotation to start the 2000 season. 
he would have a new battery mate as the Red Sox brought in a veteran backstop, Canadian-born former big leaguer Joe Siddle, to help bring him along. Siddle remembers his decision to sign with Boston. When I was a minor league free agent that offseason before 2000, I was contemplating hanging him up then, and I said to my wife, if somebody calls me and it wants my services, maybe it's meant to be, I, I will sign back, but I'm not going to go and look for a job. Well, wouldn't you know it? A lot of the Red Sox executives were former Expos, so they knew me from my Expos days. So they wanted to sign me to have a veteran catcher in AAA, and I thought, sounds great. So I went to big league camp with the Red Sox. It was awesome. Got to Pawtucket. And it was Tim Spear and myself, two veteran catchers. Joe Sidall was kind of a journeyman catcher. He was in his early 30s. Good leader, veteran guy. His wife was a doctor back in Canada, and he had contemplated retirement prior to the season. You know, he'd gone through spring training, got sent down. So he was with us in April and May. The 2000 Paw Sox would be a strong team, led by second-year manager Gary Jones and paced by strong seasons from soon-to-be big leaguers David Eckstein, Donnie Sadler, and Izzy Alcantara, the squad would ultimately finish 21 games above 500. Meanwhile, after a shaky start to his season, Oka was establishing himself as the team's ace as the month of May was coming to a close, and he made a good impression on his new catcher. Tomo was so even keel. That's what I remember so much about him. When you're catching a pitcher where nothing really rattles them a whole lot, you really feel in control. And Tomo was that kind of guy. He was easy to catch. I mean, he had good stuff, of course, but he was that demeanor that catchers love to have on the mound. And he didn't speak hardly any English, I know, and it was a lot of hand signals. We did have an interpreter there in the dugout, which helped a lot. It was challenging. It's always challenging when you have that language barrier. Tomooka was pitching well that year. Everyone knew he had good stuff. Everyone figured he'd be a major leaguer at some point, which he was eventually. Obviously, there's no way he could have predicted what happened. Two months into the campaign, while things were going well on the field, the 32-year-old Siddle was having second thoughts about continuing to play the game he loved. He remembers agonizing over his playing future. By the end of May, my wife and I were having a lot of conversation. After ball games late at night, and we had our fourth child in 99. She's working part-time, scrambling, running around. Kids are in and out of school. When you do something you love for so long, it's who you are. And to this day, the toughest thing to do for me was to cut that cord. Those discussions with my wife certainly helped me pull away. Because I got to a point where being in Pawtucket, I wasn't even really excited about a potential call-up in September. I'm thinking there's both myself and Tim Spear. A, it might not even be me that gets the call if they need somebody. And B, I was actually thinking it's going to be another month away from home. And when I thought that, I knew that it was time. As the Paw Sox were hosting the Charlotte Knights at McCoy Stadium, Siddle finally made up his mind before the third of a scheduled four-game series, June 1st, 2000. We made the decision, my wife and I, the night before. The day of the game, I actually went to the ballpark early to go into Gary Jones' office and say, Gary, I'm done. It's for family reasons. I feel very good about the decision. Well, I walk in the clubhouse probably around 2 o'clock, and the lineup was already posted for that night's game. So I looked at it and said, hmm. <laughs> so what I did, I said, you know what? I'm going to keep this inside. I'm going to go play my last game. And after the game, I'll go into his office and head home from there. So with Siddle in the lineup to catch the team's ace Oka, the Paw Sox were ready to face the White Sox affiliate on a pleasant Thursday night. Bill Wanless remembers the evening. Typical June 1st game against Charlotte and good crowd. It was a nice night, but no one could have expected what would unfold. And of course, it was a big crowd that night, which McCoy used to always get, especially on warm summer nights. So it was a really exciting atmosphere.
They are our grandparents, and in many cases, our mom and dad. They're our neighbors, and today, millions of older adults sit isolated in their homes. As your neighbors, we at Cox remind you to reach out to them. One call, one text, one video chat a day can make someone's day. Social distancing doesn't mean social disconnecting. Cox encourages you connect with a neighbor, family member, or friend. One call a day. Let them know they're not alone. This is a message from Cox, bringing us closer. The pitching matchup on this night featured a pair of talented right-handers. Oka was on a roll, having won four of his previous five starts after a slow beginning to his season. He faced off against Charlotte's Carlos Chantrez, a White Sox prospect who would win 10 games in the 2000 season. The game began with the Knights leadoff hitter McKay Christensen flying out to left, and the pitcher's duel was on. With each starter breezing along, the game remained scoreless through three innings. Don Orsolo recalls how Oka began the night with three 1-2-3 frames. He was dominant from the get-go. He had a terrific slider that was really working for him. He had some borderline calls early that went his way. I've never seen a guy at that level anyway who was able to dominate the way he did early on in that outing. Joe Siddle. I'm not one the whole third inning. He's got no hit or perfect stuff tonight. I'm not like that at all. But you can tell early on when a guy is that good. Now, I've also caught guys that have been that good for two or three innings first time through the lineup, and then they lose it. So that's very prevalent as well. I know during the game, he was just so locked in. He was pounding the strike zone, working ahead. It was masterful. It really was. When Oka got Steve Gibraltar to foul out to end the top of the fourth, he had retired the first 12 Charlotte batters he faced. One of the reasons for that success was his impeccable command. David Borges explains. I just remember Tomo Oka going out there and just pinpointing every pitch. I mean, the catcher Joe Siddle would put his glove out and didn't have to move it for pretty much all night. I don't think he had dynamic stuff, but he had great control, great command of his pitches, and just a really good head for a pitcher. It was location, location, location. He had a good fastball. I mean, he's not like some guys these days are throwing 98, 99, but he located so well. I just remember first pitch fastball right to right, he pounded outside corner strike one. It just seemed like he was working ahead all night. That's a big advantage. I just remember Tomo being so on and it being so easy back there. Because as a catch, any catcher will tell you, when a pitcher's locked in like that, it's easy. You slide over the outside corner, he hits your glove. You slide over the inside, he hits your glove. Those are fun games to catch. Don Orsillo. It seemed like everybody was 0-2. He was just throwing strikes and they were well-placed strikes, especially with his slider. And his high percentage of strikes he threw, that was the other thing. I mean, I don't remember many balls, to be honest with you. At-bats were over very, very quickly. He had all three pitches working well. He had a very good slider as a secondary pitch, and then he had the great split finger. But when you can locate that fastball at will, and I mean, he would move it in, move it out to lefties, he pounded in, and we wanted to come in, even maybe for a purpose, he did it, and then bam, split her away from the strikeout, or whatever the case may be. But I just remember having all three pitches working. The Paw Sox would give Oka a lead in the bottom of the fourth. Designated hitter Izzy Alcantara drilled his 14th of what would eventually be 29 home runs that season, a drive that sailed just inside the left field foul pole. It would be the only run Pawtucket could muster against Sean Trez in his seven strong innings of work. Now ahead in the ballgame, Oka worked another 1-2-3 frame in the fifth, capped off by a strikeout of Scott Lydie. The outs were coming so quickly that the right-hander's pitch count was remarkably low. Lou Schweckheimer, then Paw Sox general manager, remembers being surprised at how easy Oka was making it look. I always thought he was thin, almost slight. 
but I remember going out fifth, sixth inning, and I don't remember how many pitches he threw, but he didn't throw many. And I just remember the efficiency where he was just boom, boom, boom. We were all incredulous that you could throw that few pitches. You get around that fifth inning when the guy's clearly cruising, you think to yourself, well, he's pounding the strike zone. Go up hacking. Well, they did that, and I think Tomo got a lot of easy outs that way because it might have been a first-pitch fastball, but it was located so well in the outside corner. What are you going to do with it? Guys would just roll it over. They're in aggressive swing mode. It's not a bad approach, but it almost played right into Tomo's hands. In the top of the sixth, the Knights' seventh-place hitter, Liu Rodriguez, was leading off and hit a sharp ground ball up the middle. That's when Oka received help from a future big league standout. Don Ursillo was calling the game on radio. One play, it was somewhat of a difficult play. It was David Eckstein up the middle towards second base. He went to the backhand to make a play. David Eckstein made a pretty good play at second base. And I say David Eckstein because, of course, he gets to let go and turns out to be the most valuable player in the World Series. Flies one into left. Monroe is not going to get it. And the Cardinals lead it 5-4 here in the eighth inning of game four. So we can always use his name, which was great. It was the closest that Charlotte had come to getting a base runner, but Eckstein's defensive play helped Oka remain perfect through six. The home plate umpire that night was an International League rookie with New England ties. Chris Bober grew up in South Grafton, Massachusetts, only about a 45-minute drive from McCoy Stadium. Now, on a banner night in his life, he started moving more into the spotlight. Wanless has more. Chris Bolberg was the home plate umpire. He was a rookie umpire that year. He grew up in Grafton, Mass, and he had come to McCoy many times with his family prior to, and his family was in the stands. It was his first game behind the plate at McCoy. I think three, four innings in, the umpire knows, too. It wasn't one of those games where Yotomo know, was getting eight inches off the outside corner against right-handers. That wasn't the case at all. He was just so good with his command. I would say that's an easy night for the umpire because he was just covering the strike zone. Still, the Paw Sox offense failed to add to the lead, and as the game entered its latter innings, the margin of error for Oka remained razor thin. And it was only one nothing, so it wasn't like, all right, we're up eight nothing. This guy's throwing a perfect game. Let's focus on that. It was a one nothing, fast moving game. He was just working quickly and efficiently. So it really took till pretty late in the game before everyone realized he's got a perfect game going here. David Borges. I seem to remember realizing how quick the game was and how easy it was going to be to make deadline for one. I remember people saying, including Joe Siddle and others, that you couldn't tell that he had a perfect game going. It was just like any other game. He had such an even keel persona, never too high, never too low. When you're pitching like that and in cruise control the way Tomo was, it's great to think about a no-hitter perfect game, but I always tried to refrain from that because for me the priority was to win the ball game. And you can come out of your game plan a little bit if you try to be too cute. Oh, hey, I got a perfect game going. I'm going to go first pitch slider here and try to fool this guy. All of a sudden, you're down 1-0. So I remember just staying on that game plan with Tomo, thinking the game is the most important thing. And then your personal accolades come after that. Hi, I'm Ed Madeira, CEO of East Commerce Solutions. At East Commerce Solutions, we've been providing merchant services to businesses throughout New England since 1994. At East Commerce Solutions, we provide point-of-sale systems, credit card processing, payroll services, and gift card programs. Give us a call at 1-800-527-5395 or visit us online at eastcommercesolutions.com. East Commerce Solutions, we are your local merchant service provider. Have a great day.
The drama grew as Oka took the mound for the seventh inning, and people started to feel the excitement in different parts of McCoy Stadium. Siddle takes us into the dugout. Once you get through six innings, now you can count the outs. You're nine outs away, and you start counting down from nine. So you don't want to get ahead of yourself that you're trying too hard not to get hit. That guys get in trouble that way, too. But Tomo wasn't like that. He was in cruise control, and I think after six, that's when it became very real. Meanwhile, Wanless started breaking out the history books in the press box. As the game was going on, we didn't realize until we looked it up that there had only been two nine-inning perfect games in what was a 117-year history of the International League at that point. And there hadn't been one since 1952. You would have thought, oh, there must be. So as it was going on, when he was perfect, maybe through the sixth inning, we started looking at us up saying, wow, we've got a real chance for history. Imagine that becoming just the third nine-inning perfect game in 117 years. Well, I was very nervous as the game went on. With the way it was progressing, you just had that feeling. But I just remember a real surge of adrenaline, like you were almost doing it yourself as a broadcaster. Uh, that's what I remember. you got to be careful because you get a little excited that you've got something special happening, and you kind of lose your focus. You've seen How many times have you seen a no-hitter get broken up, and then the shutout gets broken up right away, too, and all of a sudden you got all kinds of problems. Oka struck out Josh Paul and Gibraltar consecutively to end a 1-2-3-7. He had now retired 21 consecutive hitters, and time-honored superstitions were coming into effect all over the ballpark. David Borges remembers the press box not wanting to jinx the occasion. Sort of might make a few hints about it, but he kind of didn't say the word or mention it. He kind of just danced around a little bit until it happened. I do believe that was the case with that game. Don Orsillo. You go through different things in your own mindset as a broadcaster. <laughs> don't yell no hitter or have the wrong guy catching the ball. You know, you don't want to mess it up personally as a broadcaster. So you're worried about yourself as well. I mean, in this whole equation, how's this going to work out for me? It could be badly if you mess it up. There wasn't a whole lot of conversations between innings. And even sitting next to him in the dugout, I always like to sit next to pitchers. I think all position players respected that space. There wasn't a whole lot going on. If Oka was feeling any pressure, it wasn't showing on the mound. In the eighth, he struck out big league veteran J.R. Phillips to begin the inning, then recorded a ground out and a hard hit fly out to end another perfect frame. It was now 24 up, 24 down. In the bottom of the inning, the Paw Sox finally added some long-awaited insurance. Aaron Holbert doubled to lead off and scored two outs later when Charlotte reliever Joe Davenport uncorked a wild pitch. Now the lead had been doubled, Bill Wanless. They made it 2-0 and took a little bit of the pressure off, but still, going out in the ninth inning, it's a game that still was in the balance. So we've got to give him credit. He blocked everything out. Rodriguez, the man who had been closest to reaching base when X-9 robbed him in the sixth, led off the ninth inning with a crowd of 7,909 holding its collective breath. This time, Oka got him to fly out routinely to center field. Mike Caruso then grounded out to Holbert at short, and McCoy was brimming with anticipation. Charlotte was down to its final out, but veteran manager Nick Leva held an ace up his sleeve and was finally ready to use it. Jeff Leifer, a lefty bopper who would smash 32 home runs that season, was on the night's bench that night. Now, Leva called his name to bat for number 9 hitter Brandon Moore. The pinch hitter had no intentions of waiting around, and as so many Charlotte hitters had done all evening, Leifer went after Oka's first pitch. The leg kick and the pitch. Leifer swings, ground ball right side. This could be it. Eckstein will flip the first. The first no-hit perfect game in the history of the Pawtucket Red Sox. Tomo Oka surrounded by his teammates. 
27 up, 27 down. And the Pawtucket Red Sox win 2 to nothing. The final out of ground ball to second baseman David Eckstein. The put out at first. And the perfect game for Tomo Oka. The thing I remember about it was just seeing his face after the game and how happy he was. GM Lou Schweckheimer was watching the celebration. When the game ended, I remember Tomo Oka's knees buckling. And I'm not sure he understood the significance of what he did. I remember Joe Siddle jumping into his arms like Yogi Berra and Don Larson in the 1956 World Series. And I remember the big celebration on the field and then champagne corks being popped in the clubhouse afterwards because team owner Beth Mondor and President Mike Tamburo brought down a case of champagne for the team to celebrate with. Just remember everyone being really happy for Oka. I just remember guys jumping around the middle of the field. Typical celebration, obviously after no hitter, perfect game. I did see a picture in the archives and it's Tomo and I think out on pitcher's mound. I can honestly tell you, I don't remember taking a picture. Bill Wanless was overseeing the horde of Japanese media covering Oka that night. They like to be up front and get close, and when Tomo was pitching in that ninth inning, they were close, and when he got the last out and celebrated, they got right with him and were right a part of things. And they got some nice shots between photos and video of him celebrating that captured the whole moment. Siddle, who had kept his impending retirement a secret all night, had a very different experience from his teammates post-game. I wasn't jumping up and down and popping champagne with all the other guys. I just kind of remember sitting at my locker and probably grimacing, smiling, and probably guys wondering what was wrong with me. I was enjoying it, but for a different reason. Once we had the celebration on the field in the clubhouse, the last thing I was going to do is rain on the parade and go into the manager's office and retire. So I just kept it quiet. I do kind of remember sitting back a little bit and soaking it all in and allowing a lot of these other players to enjoy that particular special night. The first perfect game in Paw Sox history had been one of the most masterful performances ever in the International League, which now had its first perfecto since 1952. Oka never reached a three-ball count on any of the 27 hitters he faced in an outing that was almost as amazing for its economy as it was for its brilliance. Wanless has more. It happened so quick. This game took two hours and one minute to play, start to finish. He only threw 77 pitches in the complete game, 59 for strikes, and he never threw more than 10 pitches in one inning. So he had eight strikeouts. He had 11 flyouts, so with some contact made, and he had eight ground outs, give him his 27 outs. You hate to use a routine for a perfect game, but it was just a splendid pitching performance. 77 pitches for nine innings. I mean, there's some guys that throw that in five innings, you know, four innings, you know. I just dominant. You look at some of the major league perfect games, and there are tremendous catches. And even the no-hitters that I've done over the years, usually you can point to three, maybe four plays that could have gone the other way very easily that didn't. Really, that X-9 play, you know, David X-9 was a pretty good second baseman at the time and had very good range, but it wasn't that hard for him. But if you look at it, that really was it. I mean, I don't remember another play where you went, oh, that was close. He was just that dominant. Don't remember a whole lot of tough outs. I think he had a lot of pretty weak ground balls, fly balls, and some strikeouts, of course. A lot of times, no hitters, you can look back at three or four great plays on defense. I don't really recall that. He just avoided so many barrels that night. He had the hitters eaten out of his hand. When the champagne had dried and the Paw Sox came back to work the next day, Siddle finally let out his big secret. He was ready to head back to Canada to be with his family. Years later, he would return to baseball as a broadcaster with the Toronto Blue Jays. By then, Orsillo was calling big league games with the Red Sox. The sidebar to all that was a guy who I've got to know over the years, even better, who's broadcast now in the major leagues, Joe Siddle, who caught the game 
retired after the game, which was amazing. He had been primarily a longtime minor leaguer with some major league experience. He was also part of that story. He caught the game on June 1st for Oka, and then the next day he decided to retire. He said, I'm going out on top. I just caught a perfect game. My wife is doing well as a doctor in Canada, so I'm going to go back home. So we took some photos of Oka and Joe Siddall out on the mound the next day. It just was amazing for a catcher to catch a perfect game, then retire. He basically said, that's it. I've done it all now. And I wanted to end like this. I wanted to end on a high note. He had had a cup of coffee with some major league teams, but never much. And he was 32 years old, and that was it. He said, this is the way to go out for me. Because I came that day to do it and kept it to myself, I think by coming back the next day, a lot of people think, oh, the guy catches a perfect game. You know, maybe he was contemplating it, but this solidified his decision. And I remember explaining to people, like, probably to Gary Jones, I probably said, I was like, you have to understand, it has nothing to do with yesterday here. This was something that I've been brewing with my wife in conversations, but it was very easy to look at and think, oh, the guy caught a perfect game. What a way to go out. But that was not the plan at all, but it's a lot of fun to talk about even 20 years later. I really feel that it was the greatest decision I ever made because I came home, it was early June, and in Canada here, our kids get out of school at the end of June, so they had a month of school left less, and I got to be home and be dad. Rather than my wife lugging the kids all over the country to watch minor league baseball, I got to be home, and it was the greatest thing. While Siddle's career was over, Oka's was still in its infancy. After pitching in the AAA All-Star game the month after his perfect game, he was recalled to Boston for the second half of the Major League season. There, he posted a strong 3.12 ERA in 12 starts, as the club finished only two and a half games behind the Yankees in the AL East. The next year, however, Oka struggled with the Sox and held an ERA over six when he was traded to Montreal at the deadline for closer Ugeth Urbina. Borges recalls. He was kind of looked at as one of their top pitching prospects. He kind of figured he'd get to the major leagues. I figured he might have a long, successful career. Didn't really turn out that way in and out of different organizations. But he ended up pitching for a decent amount of time, but certainly made his mark a AAA anyway. In all, Oka would pitch for five big league franchises over parts of 10 seasons, the last of which came with the Indians in 2009. He then returned to Japan, where after a major shoulder surgery, he reinvented himself as a knuckleball pitcher in hopes of getting back to the States. In 2014, the Blue Jays signed a 37-year-old Oka to a minor league deal, and his old catcher Siddle happened to be working behind the mic. Tomo came back. He was trying to come back as a knuckleball pitcher with the Blue Jays. I was still doing the radio broadcast, and he was in spring training, so we had some laughs. <laughs> I put my fingers apart, and I said, no more splitter. Where'd that one go? That was a good one. But he, he just shook his head and said, no, no, no. <laughs> Oka never pitched an affiliated game in the U.S. again. And while his career never reached the heights some predicted, for one night in June 2000, he was about as good as a pitcher could possibly be. Borges responds to whether he had ever seen a performance like that perfect game before. No, not to that point. Certainly not in person. See, on TV, I've seen Pedro's game in Yankee Stadium in 99. You know, things like that, but never in person. I had never seen a no-hitter of any sort at a professional level, so that was the best game I had ever seen personally, no doubt. It was a pretty remarkable night. Great performance by Oka and really special all around. We had some pretty good playoff wins during my time there. We didn't win a championship at any point, so I'd have to put it right up there as probably the top one or two moments in Pawtucket, certainly in McCoy Stadium for me. It was a pretty amazing night and a dominant performance. Everything's got to line up right, and it did for Tom Oka that night. My strength was defense, and I didn't hit much, so I took a lot of pride in what I did behind the plate. So any game where I felt that I called a good game was good, but it was extra special to do that. But what Tomo did was even special for me. 
had some great experiences in the major league. Special on another level because you're catching big league guys. Say catching John Wetland in Montreal or, you know, caught Kevin Brown and Al Leiter in Florida with the Marlins. So those are all very special too. But when I've been able to reflect back, I mean, can it go any better? You catch a perfect game in your last game of your career. 100% best game that I've ever caught or most memorable for sure. Oka became a national celebrity afterwards. We got a ton of attention. Again, the third time it happened in 117 years. For Solid Gold, stories of the best games in Paw Sox history, presented by Cox Communications and Sports Radio WEEI 103.7 FM, I'm Jim Kane.